people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. All right, hello. Welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam, and as ever, I'm joined by uh, Alex. And we're very happy to be back here with Annie Kelly. Um, this time, not to talk about QAnon, but to talk about Annie's research. Um, Dr. Kelly, I believe, uh, <laughs> after this, um, we're going to talk about her PhD, which was on anti-feminism online. So, um, of course, this has got a, a real significance right now because absolutely. Um, we have to acknowledge that um, last week when, when we're recording this, uh, a man in Plymouth um, shot five people, including his mother, and seems to have been, from what we can tell, but I'm sure a lot more information will come out in inquests and stuff, that he was, he in some way related to uh, the incel uh, uh, cultural phenomenon. I don't know how to describe it. It's been described in the media as a movement, but I'm, I'm not sure that's the right word. Um, and so we'll, we'll, if it's all right with you, Annie, we'll be asking about that, but we are also want to talk about the broader range of research, because I feel like whenever some kind of act of spectacular violence happens that mm. could be connected to insults, the media gets, suddenly gets very interested in this. Mm. There's a brief period of, um, of, of like discussion about it and then it all kind of goes away again. So people don't really get the big picture. You said that you kind of, as when you began your research into anti-feminism, um, that you'd actually been, and you mentioned this in, in, the, in the PhD as well, that, that you had actually been reading about this stuff for significantly longer than that, mm. um, before the formal research. You said it was kind of a strange hobby. So I was kind of interested in like what, what drew you to reading about these things. And in the conclusion, you also mentioned that this is not just you. I mean, lots of women spend mm. some time um, when you were doing talks about your work, people would admit to a certain guiltiness uh, about like knowing what these things were already about. So how, what kind of drew you initially to this, uh, these forums? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it probably results in, or it probably is a result of being raised um in a, a environment of what my parents called benign neglect um <laughs> when like many uh middle class uh millennials i had access to a computer and access to the internet um but my parents did not really know what the internet was um <laughs> and what it involved and i think when i was about 12 or 13 or so you know uh, around the age when you are curious about these sorts of things, I was a bit like, you know, I want to know what dating's like. I want to know what dating is like as a grown up. And um, that in the early noughties brought me to, I suppose, what would you would call kind of proto um, pickup artist sites or uh, kind of generally sort of sexual strategy sites and things like this. And looking back on it, um, one thing that's so funny to me is it was so mild compared to what came afterwards. So in particular, I remember at one site, which I found fascinating, which was called Ladder Theory, which was about how the, the theory was um, that 
heterosexual men, um, although obviously it didn't use the word heterosexual, it just said men and women in the kind of very heteronormative way that uh, lots of these dating sites often do. Um, so uh, heterosexual men have one ladder which they view all of their relationships with women, uh, which could be friendship or could, but always has the potential to be sexual. Uh, whereas women have two ladders, supposedly one for friendship and one for um, for, roman for romantic potential. Um, and that, you know, men needed to jump from one to the other, um, you know, but it was a, a risky jump, so to speak. And, you know, here's the things you could do to help and here's what women like and stuff. And it was, you know, quite naturally quite low-key misogynist, but certainly not, um, as I would say, violent or as kind of politically angry as um I think lots of those pickup artist sites and sexual strategy sites uh, would become um, in the kind of age of social media. Um, but I, I was fascinated and I um, I think I just, you know, uh, just read through it all with great interest. Um, I'm sure it, it probably had huge negative consequences for my own personal relationships, but uh, <laughs> but I think um, it was just very, very interesting to me. Um, and I think from then on, I always had kind of a, a, an awareness of that side of the internet. And from there, I could go to forums and stuff like that. And it was never very uh, in depth, but just every couple of years or so, I'd be like, oh, I wonder what those guys are up to now. And I'd check in on them. And this gave me a kind of largely sort of just uh, a, a general broad kind of understanding of um, I suppose this kind of uh, yeah anti-feminist kind of or feminist ambivalent um, digital network um, which when it kind of then you know I sort of went to university and became a feminist um, then sort of started spilling out over into the kind of feminist internet so things like you know sites like return of kings which would um which was run by a man called rush release day uh which was a sexual strategy site uh but also you know kind of uh, trafficked in sort of very kind of reactionary clickbait to upset people and to um get lots of views and yeah i remember sort of um, you know, being in a kind of feminist Facebook group and them all getting very upset about an article which was called 10 Reasons to Date a Girl with an Eating Disorder and sort of having to be suddenly realising I was kind of this font of knowledge about this world that I didn't even really um, particularly like to think of myself as one, but sort of just explaining to everyone, you know, oh, here's what this site is, here's their business model, this is what they're, why they're doing it, you know. Um, and I suppose that was a kind of moment of realisation where I was like, huh, I actually know quite a lot about this. Um, so I suppose when it came to time to thinking about doing a PhD, it occurred to me that this was a whole very underexplored um, network that I felt had real influence in lots of ways, but wasn't wasn't considered particularly kind of academically noteworthy um, by, by lots and lots of people um, at the time. I really want to come back to the, the business model that you mentioned uh, oh, yeah. because I'm not actually sure what the business model is so hopefully you can uh, help us with that what do you think accounts for the the shift from this 
you know, comparatively mild um, initial kind of seduction list serves, I'm guessing, mm. and like kind of early internet forums, uh, you had to, everything was kind of broken. Um, you know, what accounts for that radicalization? Is it simply that ladder theory is nonsense and therefore it doesn't work <laughs> and therefore you need to try more extreme things? Or is there something else that's going on maybe in the background that accounts for this, you know, massive escalation from that mild early period into what you know where you start in the in the theory in in the, the phd which is 2012 mm. and then further radicalization around 2016 what accounts for this kind of acceleration so i think there's a, a few things which uh, account for that acceleration one of the main um things that change between uh, the time that i first encountered these sites and uh, the time the time period I write about in my thesis, which is 2012 to 2016, thereabouts, um, is this huge de democratization of the internet. You know, I mentioned, you know, I was um, mentioned, uh, you know, I com come from a middle class background and it was very unusual at that time to have a computer and have access to the internet. Um, you know, and that changed over that course it became uh, access to the internet became cheaper um, it became easier um, smartphones social media all of these things you know um, really changed kind of how uh, the internet was shaped and this was a really really rapid shift and it really um, altered not just you know who was communicating on the internet um, but also I think how that communication was shaped um, and it's and 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 the uh, both the content and I suppose the kind of form the style um, of that speech changed um, and so suddenly you have these um, aggregator sites essentially which is what you know a lot of the most social the successful social media platforms have become um, places like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Reddit, um, even TikTok to a certain extent. Um, and this ch really, really changes, you know, how um, people communicate. And one of the most effective and easy ways um, to make yourself heard in this kind of cacophony um, is to become... Uh, louder, more confident, more angry, uh, more violent. Um, but I don't. I'm. I'm not a purely kind of. You know. Uh, I, I. I. I don't kind of work from a purely technologically determinist perspective. I think you know. There's also lots of. Um, it's also. I think the fact that this democratization of the internet makes it um, a lot more kind of gender. Um. um gives it a lot more gender parity all of a sudden there's suddenly a lot more women on the internet there's this burgeoning feminist movement um which yeah I, I don't know what you call it kind of popular feminism and you know things like this going on in the background um which i think is um really raising really raising a lot of kind of anti-feminist hackles um you know uh, at the time as well so i think yeah it's 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 not purely um determined by the by the technological aspect. Um, but I think that is an important framework to place it in that um, it's not just that, you know, me uh, feminism is kind of big again and, and men are getting angry. Um, there is also a kind of a calculation that's going on to uh, why 
suddenly these kind of angrier posts seem to be rising to the top, essentially. Uh, you make a kind of a connection between anti-feminism and post-feminism in the, in the opening bits of the mm. thesis. Could you just elaborate the difference between these two kind of intellectual movements? Yeah, sure. So post-feminism is, I suppose, essentially the idea that, you know, feminism was very, very good, but it's, it's pretty much over now. You know, it's pretty much done. Uh, men and women are pretty much equal. Um, and anti-feminism, the way I define it, um, specifically is opposing itself to um, kind of a, um, a feminist movement. Um, so being an anti-feminist isn't just the same as saying, you know, I'm not a feminist or, you know, um, I'm not really sure about feminism, all these kind of um, ambivalences. It's actually directly opposing yourself to the kind of contemporary feminist movement. Um, so they're not actually kind of completely distinct. People can use post-feminist arguments to further an anti-feminist position. Um, but it's kind of how I distinguish the two, essentially. How do you think that the, you mentioned also kind of a broader category here of um, angriness uh, in this uh, <laughs> scene. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. Yeah. Um, I, I guess like a different strain of this ideology, which is anti-SJW, anti-social justice warrior, yeah. rather than specifically anti-feminist. How do you connect mm -hmm. these two? Like what, what are you, what's the difference between the two? And, or do they both kind of rely on essentially the same thing? And then you make some really interesting connections later between how it is that once you've started on the kind of the anti-feminist route, inevitably you kind of branch out into racism of various forms and how anti-feminism is connected with racism and so on. And I wonder maybe if you could kind of get into like how you see these things as kind of interconnected. SKW seems so outdated now. I don't it know, really just maybe is. how fast yeah. the terminology moves on the internet, but we've... I mean, now it's critical race theory, but yeah. Seems so. But yeah, who are the people? What's the name? What's the kind of collective noun for the people who propagate critical race theory? Workists. Uh, woke. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess so. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Um, so <laughs> the the distinction between SJWs and feminists is is one I really really tried to find, um, and I tr I tried to um, honestly and and fairly approach the question because people would you know very often insist that you know uh, when someone talked about sjws they didn't mean feminists um and so you know i would kind of try and approach the differences that i could find and largely it always seemed to be well feminists um just wanted women to have the right to vote um, and SJWs kind of, you know, want complete dominance over men. And you'd sort of think, okay, well, women having the right to vote is a battle that, you know, in the UK and the US, uh, you know, was, was fought at the earlier half of the last century. Um, you know, the, the feminists you're talking about are long dead. Um, and so it's very nice that, you know, you support them, um, but that battle is largely gone <laughs> it's um you know it's it's um by and large not particularly relevant to the contemporary moment um and so yeah i i i may have let like a little bit of my kind of personal um <laughs> personal sentiment sort of get into this because I, I usually try very hard to kind of see things from um the users i'm looking at's point of view but i 
and you know not kind of be overly critical but I largely could not find a like satisfying logical conclusion for why SJWs and feminists were uh, were talking about different people another one would quite often be you know oh well um feminists are you know very nice and they don't want you know dominance over men and um they they look normal you know um whereas sjws have you know pink and green hair and loads of piercings and stuff like that and once again it kind of felt a bit like you know this is an aesthetic distinction it's not it's not actually a political distinction um so yeah i largely largely I tried my hardest, but I felt like I came to the conclusion essentially that um, they it was essentially a, a new moniker um, for for an old um, concept. And this is something that I think you know the digital anti-feminist movement has been most successful at doing is creating new monikers for old concepts, um, updating it, making it fresh. Do you know? You link them through the idea of they're both counter-subversive. And I wonder, mm. this is a great term, I think it's a really, really useful term. And it's mm. like, a, it's a thing that kind of like really uh, gathers, as far as I could tell, all this work together. I was wondering, maybe you could like tell us what is counter-subversiveness and what is the fear of subversion doing here and what is being subverted as well? Mm. <clears throat> yeah, well, first of all, I should say it's, it's not my term. Um, it, I, I wish it was because it's so great. Uh, but it's a term I read in a really really fascinating book called Ronald Reagan the movie um, by the political scientist Michael Rogan and he I think does one of the most convincing um, rebuttals essentially to a very influential piece still uh, by Richard Hofstadter uh, called The Paranoid Style which I'm guessing you're both familiar with just talking about the kind of McCarthyist um, tendency in America in the 1950s and 60s and um, I mean it's a fascinating and, and very well written essay um, but it does kind of pathologize a lot of the kind of uh, reactionary kind of um, anti-communism of the time <clears throat> as paranoid as you know delusional as kind of gripped in a, in a, a fervor of madness and what Michael Rogan does very convincingly, you know, as he sort of says, you know, this, um, you can't describe people as being kind of, yeah, gripped in this kind of pathology when um, this pathology is essentially um, fed by, you know, Hollywood and Madison Avenue and the political infrastructure of the time. And, you know, um, you're, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a style, sure. Um, but you can't kind of um, call it a kind you can't refer to it as a madness um, um, on such a kind of individual level. Um, and he sort of um, pins it to, yeah, counter subversion. Um, so it's the fear of subversion, essentially, which doesn't necessarily need to be about communism, although it wasn't the time that Hofstadter was writing about it. And he quite convincingly says, you know, um, this kind of same sort of subversion anxiety um, or, and the counter-subversive tendency has kind of, um, you know, shown itself in films like, for instance, Birth of a Nation and, um, you know, even kind of earlier and around the kind of Civil War um, and all of these kind of times that 
um, essentially um, it expresses a fear of um, of one thing kind of becoming the other, of one kind of naturalized dominance becoming an unnatural dominance. Um, so yeah, so communism over you know democracy, um, black over white, woman over man. Um, but also the kind of you know subversive subversives themselves um, are necessarily unseen. Their behavior is necessarily clandestine. Um, and this kind of, you know, um, is, this is where he talks about, you know, this is, this feeds the kind of paranoia essentially that Hofstadter is talking about. Um, but it is coming from somewhere, you know, it's not a kind of individual pathology. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if I've explained that brilliantly. That's good. (laughs) Um, That's good. (laughs) I think another part of the context here is, um, we're living in like the post 9-11 era mm. and much of digital anti-feminism is american in in oh well um, a lot of them are americans and they all have a kind of american way of relating to mm. culture and politics um how does this our place in the post 9-11 world play into this kind of anti-feminism i guess there's a sense in which like post 9-11 period enlisted the population right and like there's mm. like the, the nation will be defended but only if we all take our our mm. part and so there's kind of a there's a kind of a security politicization and so on so whereas in you know the 1950s and 60s we had McCarthyism and so on like you know now we have this different thing so maybe I think your question is about that I don't know yeah one of my favorite lines in Arrested Development that sitcom is when um Tobias Funke is being asked like when things went wrong for his marriage and he's like I don't want to blame it all on 9-11 <laughs> yeah. but it certainly didn't help <laughs> and, uh, yes. and I feel like that could have been a subtitle for my thesis <laughs> 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 um, um, yeah because I think 9-11 um, really um, provides this um setting which is perfect i think for um you know so many of these kind of um counter subversive anxieties to rear up again um and i was you know really interested there's a, a susan faludi um i think it's a book but the bit I'm talking about is just an essay. So there's an essay in her book, The Terror Dream, um, where she kind of specifically talks about um, how one of the almost first, almost instantaneous reactions to uh, 9-11 is this kind of, you know, uh, concept of feminism as having been this luxury belief. Um, You know, that was all fine and, you know, that was all fine and dandy for when things were going well. Um, but you know we're at war now so you know it's it's time to kind of um it's time to kind of time to sort of you know forget that sort of um that kind of women's empowerment dream um and I think this is um an undercurrent that kind of underpins lots and lots of anti-feminist thought that essentially you know this kind of belief in in gender equality um is essentially kind of a a sign of decadence right 
Um, and the, the more fascistly inclined among them might even call it a sign of degeneracy. Um, you know, an empire essentially crumbling um, because it's, it's liberalized too much. It's become soft. It's become passive. Um, and yeah, I, you know, this has always been a, a theme in certain kind of conservative writers. And it was before 9-11 and, you know, it will be after. Uh, this kind of, you know, uh, this sort of inherently kind of reactionary sort of nostalgia for, you know, a, a time when uh, things were simpler, the uh, country was stable and men were men and women were women. Um, but it certainly seemed to gain a real prominence after 9-11 because you have a, a country that is, um, they're not even really a country because, you know, so many of us are, our politics kind of operates in, in satellite to the uh, United States um, that felt vulnerable and and traumatized. You know, they just witnessed a, a spectacle of you know uh, mass death and destruction, which many believed they would never never see in their own country, and certainly not in the, you know uh, for those of us watching from different countries, certainly never in the United States. Um, there's a concept that. Um, yeah, the feminist uh, scholar Kristen J. Anderson uses in relation to 9-11 and kind of women's roles called terror management theory, which talks about, um, you know, how people grapple with the fear of death. Um, and this is, yeah, this is a, a concept that I find fascinating um, and I could talk about it a lot more. Um, but just one one of many, many ways that kind of humans seek to void seek to you know cope with that sort of inevitable fact um is supposedly a kind of you know gripping gripping two kind of um traditions essentially a kind of around traditional institutions around religion and faith and family uh when they are reminded of their own death um or, or of the inevitability of their own death i should say um, and yeah, so she, you know, kind of talks about how, um, well, she talks about how this kind of relates to 9-11 in, in many, many different ways, but particularly she says kind of around the, the role of women, um, you know, that essentially this kind of, um, spectacle of, yeah, of mass death was, was always likely to lead to a kind of reactionary, um, backlash against feminism, not just in the kind of, you know, opportunistic sense that, you know, uh, certain kind of conservatives have kind of been, you know, just, just, uh, waiting for something like this to kind of justify what they already thought. Um, but also the kind of idea that it may have, have genuinely, uh, made lots of people, you know, um, kind of, yeah, sort of cling to, um, perhaps kind of traditions that they 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 thought they had you know evolved past had progressed past um, as a kind of psychological response, um, and I just found that fascinating. I think that's um, yeah. I, I I think you know the ways that um, people grapple with the fear of death and how it kind of affects their kind of um, worldview is a really interesting question. Um, yeah, so that's kind of something I I threw in there as a maybe <laughs> i think this is so i think the last time you were here we discussed which conspiracy theories we believe in and i think i admitted to a certain 
9-11 trutherism and everything you're saying makes so much more sense if Bush did 9-11. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> right, I this think is this going in... my thesis part two. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a, uh, I think there's a really interesting uh, microcosm of what we've been talking about in the kind of new atheist content creator um, mm. sphere, which developed very interestingly over 2000 and one which I was quite taken with at one point in my early teen years as, as I think a lot of teen boys yeah same, were. same yeah yeah we've already talked about this quite a lot on on the show and yeah, my boyfriend a... was actually and when he says one of his like one of his memories that keeps him up at night the most is when they all had to do a presentation about something that mattered to them in year eight and he did his on atheism which is just like I think is so cute but you like it's just like yeah sometimes oh, i'm just like oh, lying goodness. in bed and just remember it absolute cringe yeah we've, everyone's <laughs> got it <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a connection there, there seems to be a real turn in these, these with these guys from atheism to both islamophobia like much more explicit islamophobia and uh, anti-feminism and i wondered why did this why this transition from atheist content which is on the most part quite inoffensive through to Islamophobia and, and anti-feminism. How did this, why did this happen? And was this always inevitable that this critique of, of, of this, this atheist critique of religion was always going to end up that way? I, I remember quite vividly uh, Richard Dawkins in his God Delusion book uh, describing like the limited view of religion as like a giant burqa over your brain or something really hor hor horrible. Mm. And I wondered if this was, this was inevitable in new atheism. Yeah, the question of whether it's inevitable is a really interesting one to me, especially because unlike a lot of what I viewed with the anti-feminist network at large, um, I actually sort of had to do post-New Atheist internet archaeology, really. I was never part of that network, and I wasn't really particularly aware of it until long after it had sort of crossed the Rubicon, so to speak, and um, yeah, Richard Dawkins was posting kind of like, yeah, semi-racist and, and misogynist, you know, cartoons and videos and stuff like that. Um, so perhaps you guys will um, have a little bit more insight than I do into this because um, I have had to just sort of trace this journey backwards, as it were, um, which naturally means, you know, I, I will have missed a lot of... Um, you know, new atheist uh, content, which probably was, you know, genuinely very, very progressive and liberatory and all the rest of it. And uh, it's been my job almost to kind of focus back and, you know, focus in on the kind of strands that I think are, are relevant to um, its kind of journey into a broader anti-feminist network. Um, but certainly... It seemed to me that there was this kind of response to 9-11, um, but also kind of, um, you know, uh, the international stage, uh, uh, war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, um, the kind of increasing rise of terror attacks in general, um, to frame this 
as a fight between Western rationalism and religious fundamentalism, um, which almost feels like, to me, a very, you know, a very superficial kind of way of understanding it, because to me, those positions, um, you know, cannot be divorced from the material context in which they arise, right? Um, that, you know, um, a group of people don't suddenly arrive at religious fundamentalism, um, you know, uh, just just on, on a whim, on a vibe, <laughs> so to speak. Um, well, and, and, Taliban a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> and similarly with, um, with yeah, kind of this uh, sort of uh, rationalism. Um, and, you know, uh, yes, you know, kind of many terrorists are religious fundamentalists, but, you know, they're also responding to, uh, you know, specific uh, socio-political context, um, you know, in, in which they emerge. And, you know, one thing that's almost ironic about this is now I find myself often when I'm doing interviews saying this about terrorists on the alt-right and terrorists on, you know, um, an incel terrorist and, and all the rest of it, you know. Um, so yeah, it's kind of funny that we've almost come full circle in, in that aspect. Um, and yeah, so in, in, in many ways, it sort of seemed like a almost defensive response to, um, to, yeah, the reality, I suppose, of terror in the 21st century. Um, but also to, you know, um, the US's culpability in um yeah and war and wars in the middle east and yeah and it sort of you know it felt very subversive because it was saying you know haha george bush went to war because god told him to you know isn't that ridiculous um but it wasn't actually particularly you know it wasn't actually particularly challenging um the actual kind of political context of that that war or of its central targets its main victims you know um the the iraqi people um you know it it still was kind of trying to seek to naturalize a kind of u.s dominance um over those people whether it be by um yeah, w whether it be by, you know, they kind of hate us for for our freedoms or, you know, this kind of, um, yeah, this sort of, uh, yeah, Western, Western Enlightenment values, essentially. Um, but I am kind of conscious that, yeah, I say this as someone who has had, had to kind of unpick it back. Um, and that, yeah, so I, I don't know if I feel, I feel, capable essentially of answering whether it was inevitable that it, it did emerge this way certainly it seemed like um many of its main main figures kind of Richard Dawkins and um Sam Harris and people like that always had this kind of flirtation with anti-feminism um do you know um almost on, on the on the grounds that um you know uh, misogyny was kind of a, a, a vice of religion and, and nothing more, do you know, um, which sort of seems to be quite an undercurrent in um, certainly Dawkins's kind of later 
musings on the subject. No, no, yeah, I think I got off the train of, of the new AC thing when it started to pivot into a real, really explicit misogyny. Mm. Um, I think I was on board for the atheism, but um, there also seem to be like a count, the, the two things, Islamophobia and hatred of Muslims seem to be counterposed against feminism as well. Like, why are you not concerned about all this, all these barbarians in foreign lands doing this, all these horrible things to women? Our society, Western liberal democracy, is the pinnacle of civilization, and therefore you are, there's no, nothing for feminism to address here. Why are you not in Afghanistan ripping uh, burqas off women's heads and, and things like that? I think that was, mm. that is a kind of a part of it as well. Yeah. And, you know, you see this happening less to, less to feminists these days and more to LGBTQ activists. Um, but I often find that argument so fundamentally threatening, right? Do you know that argument of, you know, um, why are you complaining about things here? You should be looking after those real oppressed, you know, people um, over there in the in the Middle East. Because often I feel like what it's really saying is we could do this to you if we wanted, and the fact that we don't is a sign of our, you know, um, a sign of our benevolence. So stop criticizing us. Do yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a really uh, important point. It just it often I think it's you know it's it just. I think I write about this in the in the thesis. It's it's a, just a much more genteel version of a of a rape threat to me. Um, that those arguments. So I, I find it really, yeah, really unpleasant seeing same the same tactics now being used for for LGBT people particularly. Let's get into the the kind of the body of uh, what anti feminists kind of argue. So we I think we've you've set up the cultural context for us. You know, really nicely. Let's get into what they actually argue. And I wanted to kind of hone in on just this one line where you try and compare um, A Voice for Men, which is one of the websites that you spend your time thinking about, and um, uh, Return of Kings, which is another one. And you're trying to see what is in common between these two websites and also uh, possibly in, in common with Kotaku in Action, which is the, the subreddit that you also talk about. And the line that you write here is either both critiques of feminism come from the central shared premise that to be attracted to a woman is to be somehow inherently emasculated by her. And I'm really fascinated by this terrible, almost kind of, uh, ter yeah, it's, it's a really tragic worldview, right? Mm -hmm. you, you must be uh, attracted to women because that is your place as a man. But if you are attracted to women, then you are no longer a man because she has emasculated you by making you, and this kind of just like this turmoil here. So how do you think this sense of women's power is constructed in anti-feminist discourse? Yeah, I mean, I honestly don't even know if you need to look as far into anti-feminist discourse to define this concept. Do you know, I was really struck, I remember, by quite an old piece, I think, by Michael Kimmel now, where he's like, you know, just like look at all of the words that we use to describe an attractive woman. It's like always stuff like she's a bombshell. She's got legs that kill, do you know, like kind of like all of this very like violent imagery around around sexy ladies, do you know? Um, this kind of idea that they are like, yeah, weapons in some sense. Um, in fact, yeah, now, now that I think about it, I've been watching a lot of Love Island this summer and that's one of the ways that they refer to like a, a, a sexy girl. They say she's a weapon. Um, weapon. So that's the new one, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That's extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I hadn't yeah. heard it before. I'm, I'm learning so much from Love Island, actually. We're trying to get them to sponsor us, but they're, uh, they're declining. <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, so I, I think you, you really don't need to, to look very far to, um, you, you certainly don't need to go trawling to uh, the parts of the internet that I did to, to find this understanding essentially around heterosexual desire, um, that, you know, um, a, a, a man is unmanned by the act of desire in a woman. Um, and the only way he can kind of regain, uh, you know, regain that, that foothold, that power, um, is by by conquest right by, by which I mean sleeping with her um, and this is actually where the key difference between a voice for men which is a, a I suppose what you might call a more classic men's rights activist um, website versus Return of Kings which is a sexual strategy site sort of um, this is where they kind of differ so you know Return of Kings essentially, you know, says, you know, we'll we'll teach you how to how to sleep with that woman so she no longer has any power over you. Um, a voice for men says, hang on, you know, there's there's you're still, you know, teaching them how to chase after women. Um, you know, even if you do end up sleeping with her, so what? You know, that's still um, you're still framing your life around her. Therefore, she's still got got one over on you, so to speak. Um, but the fundamental idea is the same, right? That still neither of them are actually questioning this, this understanding that attraction is, uh, that being attracted to someone is humiliating, is undignifying, is emasculating. Um, so I kind of, yeah. And I should say um, these, uh, these two sites and the owners of them, Paul Elam and Rush Valizadeh, had a, had a long and protracted feud uh, over, <laughs> over the years. Um, and yeah, um, so, so, you know, they outlined their differences, you know, pretty comprehensively as they saw them. Um, and one thing that I found really interesting, uh, looking at those differences was how actually they still seem to have so much in common, um, which to me is kind of more representative of the, a lot of the anti and they said anti-Semitism, anti-feminism environment. Um, as a whole, it's often about, you know, outlining these, you know, supposedly kind of very dramatic differences. Um, but there is, you know, there is a kind of locus of belief, uh, which binds all of them. And I guess that's why they're called or were called the manosphere. You don't hear that, that phrase much these days. Um, but that's what they were called. Yeah, the kind of idea that they were all orbiting around one another because they all had more in common than they had apart. Um, and I should say, yeah, that's not exclusive to the anti-feminist network, right? Like anybody who's been on the left knows all about the petty grievances of small differences. <laughs> and <laughs> Just a random uh, thing about Rush V, who I hadn't followed for ages. And then when preparing for this interview, I kind of went back over his greatest hits. And the, the thing, he's got really into baking. I don't know if you've seen this. And he, yeah. he, he describes baking as like a like the masculine of, mas the man version of cooking, because it's all very... Mm. Uh, you know, measuring things out and cooking it at a certain temperature, but these, these I mean, it's ridiculous. But um, so that's yeah. so. Hang on. So the the masculinity in it is that it's like you you. Have it's to scientific. It's not really it's like a, okay, yeah. it's not artistic like right. cooking generally. It's no. not intuitive. It's yeah. not like a thing that you know how to do. You'd have to follow the instructions. Yeah. No. He, Aren't he does... you cocked by the instructions? Isn't that <laughs> sure? What if the instructions were written by a woman? Sounds sounds pretty sus to me, bro. I mean, he'd be on it straight away. I think he'd do his research, but yeah. I don't. It, it's 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 really strange how these really like unreasonable uh, ideologies produce 
I mean, it's not strange. It's really understandable. He's unreasonable, completely like out there ideology produced really unreasonable out there kind of little bits of thinking. Um, there's also the also thing about uh, the relation to women, which I think is common across um, all three sites you talk about is uh, kind of women as not really people or not really human mm-hmm. beings at all. And I wondered how how that plays out in each case, because uh, with with specifically with Kusaku it seems like women are kind of a, an intrusion into a male cultural space. Whereas with the other two, it seems like like yeah, like a danger and uh, something to be like feared rather than uh, and and to be kept out of men's spaces. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that is just at the heart of misogyny, right? Um, that uh, uh, women, however, however you define it, um, are not just not quite people in the same way that you are um but i think i think you know that is you know such a kind of uh, a common locus to so many different ways of imagining that um so yeah so you can have you know um women as um you know these kind of essentially slightly like demonic forces as lots of anti-feminist writing can sometimes portray them as these agents of chaos other times they're almost like unthinking automatons right you know uh, they're like almost slightly robotic in their kind of desires and, and needs and you just need to kind of you know learn the cheat codes in a way and then you kind of sort it um and what I should kind of make clear which is a a big part of my thesis is that you know it's not as if even though these uh, ideas will contradict one another um that doesn't actually stop one person from holding both of them and kind of using each of them uh, as they see fit at an appropriate time um you know women are yeah women are um yeah demonic agents of chaos one moment and next time and uh, the next moment they're unthinking automatons just depending on which suits your preferences at that moment um and that's sort of not to kind of you know do a sort of slightly cheap haha you know they don't know what they're talking about kind of thing i think you know uh that's the that's the nature of many kind of beliefs that people hold that they'll kind of contradict and overlap and all the rest of it um but I think it is a kind of important point to remember, um, essentially, that you, you know, sometimes I, I say this when I'm at a kind of seminar group talking about, you know, the, the far right or something like that. And so you can see someone getting really, really frustrated, essentially, by, you know, feeling like if they just think about this a little harder, they'll be able to, they'll be able to find the kind of baseline um, baseline logic that kind of fits together perfectly and you sort of have to be a bit like you know forget it jake it's chinatown do you know like it's it's not necessarily um gonna you're not necessarily gonna find that satisfaction um but that is kind of the nature of prejudice and belief um and the way those two kind of interact and and um political speech as well the two um kind of sides of this that you outlined were very similar in some ways to Klaus Terolite's um, 
distinction between the red women and the white women in um, male fantasies, right? Where you're talking about the, well, the mm-hmm. Flicor say in their memoirs, basically, you have these communist red women who are kind of unbelievably threatening and terrifying and kind of agents of chaos, as you put it. And you have the white women who are these like upper class German women who are nurses and something. And they're just kind of like, he describes them, I think it's like blank white squares. Mm-hmm. It's like non-entities that is like fulfilling some sort of role and not even like engaging to the, mm-hmm. the men that is like there and not even really there. You're like, so they, did, they just never appear in the memoirs, even though, of course, there are lots of, um, when it's writing about the First World War, lots of the free corps, of course, like, um, you know, th- th- there were lots of um, female nurses in the trenches, right? But, mm-hmm. but like that is kind of ignored in some way. So it's very interesting that over the over a century since like that has been the same kinds of archetypes of, of womenhood are basically sustained in some way. Yeah, I love that book, by the way. Um, yeah, anyone who's interested in, in this podcast should definitely read it. Yes, and if you don't read it in the original German, then you're... you're, you're, you're <laughs> I can't even read German, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned at the very beginning that there was a business model for these sites. Oh, yeah. What is that? What? How are they making money? What are they getting? Are, are they selling... Is Rushvi, uh, is he just like selling people courses? Like, what, what, what's what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so i mean uh most of them um followed the business model that um so when i say most of them i'm I'm talking about the anti-feminist blogs uh were very very popular up until sort of around 2013 2014 or so a bit later 2015 or so um uh it, it was very popular and moderately uh successful model of um pay-per-clicks do you know uh where you um would go through kind of a generic sort of internet advertising company and for every view that ad got they would send you a certain amount of money um and so this incentivized hugely uh which is what i was talking about before this very uh attention grabbing clickbaity kind of headlines that were uh, outrage bait essentially um and they certainly you know aren't the only people to operate on this business model you know uh much more established uh media does it and you know people um have written about you know places like the daily mail and stuff do it doing it as well um so it's it's you know not particularly um noteworthy but i do think it um had an impact essentially on um a sort of vein of anti-feminist discourse, which then, you know, said that to be as offensive and uh, quote-unquote triggering, which was a favourite word for a while, um, as possible, uh, was, you know, not only um, funny, but actually slightly heroic, slightly kind of, you know, slightly brave, slightly courageous, you know, kind of uh, speaking truth to power, that kind of thing. Um, which, you know, I think sort of ran concurrently to the fact it was also quite a successful business strategy for a lot of people. Um, so, and, uh, this doesn't just apply to blogs, actually YouTube, um, had a, had a big, uh, impact on it as well. Um, and it also stretched to things like the influence economy, which, you know, is what the blog, what sort of supersedes the kind of blogosphere on this, um, which isn't quite as directly translatable to profit. Um, 
But you see influences like uh, Mike Cernovich, who then crosses over into the QAnon sphere, funnily enough, um, being a really uh, early understander of this, that you make something, you know, you you, you post something that is just going to get everyone's backs up and it means they're all looking at you. And even if, you know, a hundred of them are shouting at you, 10 will probably follow you. And, you know, you keep this, you keep this kind of engagement routine up and you build a profile essentially, um, which um, in Cernovich's case, then, you know, um, translated to people, you know, more people buying his juices, I think his juices, he was kind of a bit of a like, yeah, uh, one of those kind of um, sort of before the like raw meat guys were really big, but one of those kind of, you know, big into, yeah, personal health and taking his vitamin plan and all the rest of it. Um, and you juice for meat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the pre pre meat economy, so the juice economy. <laughs> um, presumably yeah. also to get people to buy his Gorilla Mindset book. That was it. Gorilla Mindset. Yeah, I'd like totally forgotten what he was selling. <laughs> but I, I knew people called him Juice Bro because yeah. he yeah, was big on big on juicing. But yeah, that was it. Um how do yeah. these things, sorry how do we how do we move from anti-feminism to like nationalist nationalism like, yeah let's think about that can you just tell us about how that connection works how that kind of ramp i guess works sure i mean well i think the fundamental connection is subversion right um that if you train a user just looking at this from a purely user-based point of view if you train a user to kind of uh uh to notice these little clues that subversives are leaving you everywhere um then they're also going to notice kind of certain you know uh, that's the sort of way their kind of mind is operating they're also going to notice um you know all these other elements of subversion maybe not even in gender subversion but in in racial one and and you know communist subversion and all the rest you know it's a kind of um anxiety that really primes you um to kind of um to to spot those um those things essentially um but also i think you know anti-feminism is you know it is an ideology or a set of ideologies which at their heart will naturalize inequality right um you know which are telling you that the kind of very sort of obvious very clear you know statistics and data which point to some quite you know apparent inequality um are just a result of kind of natural um forces and when you are arguing that there is no real reason why you should stop arguing that once you read once you leave your pet your pet theory do you know and people do people do all the time you know um, there are many anti-feminists who, you know, notice the kind of far-right turn a lot of the network were taking and took a, you know, pretty principled stance saying, you know, I can't, can't go alongside with this. But they did often lose lose money and lose supporters and lose everything as a result of it because this was, in many ways, the kind of, uh, this was the way the tide was turning, you know. Um, and, yeah, once you once you are... Um, you know, putting yourself on board with an, uh, uh, an argument that naturalizes inequality. Um, 
it only makes sense, you know, you're eventually going to say, well, why doesn't this argument make sense for race? And why doesn't this argument make sense for class and uh, all the rest of it? You know, there's, there's no reason why you should stop. Um, and then finally, another um, reason I think for it is the kind of slight conspiratorial attitude that anti-feminism fosters, um, which, you know, you are because conspiracy theories often address a contradiction, you know, uh, a contradiction um, in lots of cases with uh, anti-feminist ideology. I'm really massively simplifying here, but a lot of the cases it is that contradiction is if women are so mentally and physically inferior to us, how have they got us beat? Why are, why are they oppressing us if they, are, <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> um, if they're so kind of, you know, mentally and physically puny. And then the answer kind of has to be like, well, they didn't play fair. They cheated and someone helped them cheat. And, you know, there's lots of kind of arguments on, on how they did that. But as it happens, neo-Nazis have got a very clear answer for you on who helped them do that. Do you know, <laughs> and how they help them do it because it's their answer to everything. Do you know? Um, so, in many ways, it's um, a, a comfortable route out of that contradiction. Um, is you know not just as extreme as neo-Nazi ideology, um, but you know a kind of far-right understanding of you know um, power and how it how it works and how it you know, um, uplifts the undeserving to, you know, crush the kind of uh, worthy sort of white working man. I mentioned at the start of the interview, we we're going to talk about uh, Plymouth and what happened there. Mm. Um, and it seems to be that we didn't, we, we haven't really discussed incels at all in this, in mm. this interview so far, which uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of anti-feminism out there and incels, I guess, mm. the latest manifestation of, 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 of what we established has, has a very long history. Um, this guy, uh, he seems to have some familiarity with incel culture or incel mm. discourse. He owned a licensed shotgun and he, he, he has killed five people, including his, his mother and then killed himself. Um, how, how, how would you describe the kind of, would you describe incelism as a as a movement? It seems strange to do so, considering that a lot of these people sit in their bedrooms and just post on the internet all day. Yeah, no, I I wouldn't call it a movement. Um, I would probably say that uh, it's an ideology, though. Um, that sort of seems like the the clearest kind of uh, category for yeah for in incelism. <laughs> It's kind of quite an ugly word. Um, but yeah, you know, um, in terms of what happened with Plymouth, you know, there's, there's still so much we don't know. So I'm kind of reluctant to, uh, you know, give give my take on it all. But I do think there are some, some interesting um, things about the way that it's been reported. Um, because in many ways, this is our first, it's not the first conviction we've had, funnily enough, for someone who's kind of been associated with the, um, oh, no, he's, he's not uh, not been convicted, but it's not been our first, um, yeah, it's not been our first incident, I suppose. Um, but it has been the first 
um, yeah, mass murder in this country, um, allegedly by someone with connections to um, incel culture. Um, and so in many ways, it does kind of operate as a little bit of a test case for the UK in how legally and culturally we kind of approach this ideology. Um, and, you know, it sort of seems to have devolved into a slight kind of debate over whether the incel ideology is a terror ideology. Um, and I really do sympathize with, you know, the many feminist activists who are, who are arguing that it should be considered one because I really do understand the frustration with, you know, how long it's taken to get, um, you know, an ideology which at its core is a very, very violent hatred of women to get it taken seriously, to get the acts of violence that, uh, um, you know, follow from it taken seriously. So I, I do, I do sympathize with people, you know, when they are, you know, demanding that it be named as a kind of, yeah, as a terrorist ideology. At the same time, I don't, I don't actually think it would be very helpful for it to be, for it to do so. Um, for one thing, you know, there's not actually an organization, as you point out, it's not a movement. Um, it's an ideology. It does have, you know, a kind of understanding of the world and, um, you know, a kind of desire to um, that to reinstate this kind of mythical eternal patriarchy that they kind of have this idea was was stolen from them and um, this kind of understanding. So it, it, you know, it does have a political element. Certainly, it's not just um, pure kind of misogyny. Um, but at the same time, I kind of, I, I worry because I think so much of the incel rhetoric, the incel um, ideology is so diffuse over the internet, do you know, that I sort of, I sort of worry about how you could actually, how you could actually kind of police or categorize that, do you know, like how many guys have you known to say, you know, nice guys finish last or you know, pretty girls are stuck up and, you know, all of these kind of ideas. These are, you know, yes, they're incel ideas, but they're also just very common ideas, right? I've heard lots of people say nice guys finish last. I still don't actually know what it means. Um, <laughs> is it like they fail or is it, is this, is it is finishing like as in to do with sex or have I totally, <laughs> what, what am I getting? Yeah, I'm, no, it just, it, mean, it just means they fail, they lose. Okay, right. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, God, it's a blow. All right. We also see in the response to a lot of these, and I think you're right. We can't. I, I, we brought it up because it was people. A lot of people are talking about, and I mm -hmm. think it's important. I think I agree with you about the, 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 your point about uh, classifying incelism as as terrorism. Um, but it's also interesting in response to these tragedies. And oh, sorry. And I also think we shouldn't be like pathologizing this guy. With we, we can't diagnose him or anything mm -hmm. like that. It's not our place to do that in any case. Um, in response to a lot of these tragedies, what we see is a lot of kind of centre-right mainstream commentators popping up and saying, well, actually, what we need to do is get a load of women and give them to the to these men. And just kind of repeating the same incel, in, repeating incel stuff back yeah. to incels. And <laughs> there's the kind of really classic, my one of my favourite YouTube videos on the internet is my Joe Rogan completely outsmarts um, 
uh, Jordan Peterson, where he kind of they have this exchange about equality of opportunity and how it's bad, and then Rogan brings up the kind of um, Peterson's um, women should be given to men thing and saying, isn't this equality of opportunity all over again? And mm. um, I think we really need to be confronting a lot of these kind of very standard rhetorical talking points much more kind of robustly because mm. it's essentially incel stuff just said back to incels. Yeah, absolutely. And it it almost misunderstands the incel complaint, you know, um, because like, hey, look, you know, I'm... <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to lie and say that you know dating in the in the modern world of whatever is is easy for everyone. That's obviously a ridiculous proposition to make, and it doesn't necessarily point to a kind of personal failing if it is hard for you. Um, but it does feel a bit like you know that's only part of it. You know they want to be they want to be wanted. They wouldn't be happy with just being given given a government mandated girlfriend you know um that it's it's the the desire to be desired is what's kind of being expressed on a lot of these forums um they would just you know if they if you know we entered you know some dystopian sci-fi reality tomorrow and suddenly you know women were being handed out to uh, incels they would still just, you know, find find a way to, uh, you know, victim, you know, victimize themselves in in terms of, um, you know, look at look at all the chads over there who don't even need a government mandated girlfriend. Their life is so much better than mine. You know, <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it, it it kind of takes that. I think very, very human feeling, uh, you know, which I think everyone can can relate to the, the the desire to be desired the the want to be wanted um and kind of takes it and you know frustrates it and perverts it um and 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 turns it into this kind of you know almost unrecognizably horrible hateful kind of outward facing um yeah rage um, but there's kind of, yeah, one thing I, I also want to add to that, which is that that's also, you know, um, this kind of, yeah, this kind of rage that um, women don't want you, that women don't behave to you how they should do, um, you know, that um, that women are, in fact, you know, yeah betraying a kind of a, a previously natural contract between men and women is you know also a very common ideology of much more what we might call much more mundane violence of domestic abuse of rape and this is a kind of another thing that troubles me about the kind of debate around incel terror um which is something that when I'm I'm interviewed about incels, you know, often a journalist wants to know what's what's the threat level in terms of terror, and I'll often try and stress, and funnily enough, it never ever makes it into the final piece that the biggest risk they pose is to the women in their lives, you know, to mothers, sisters, friends, maybe even girlfriends, you know, 
Um, and it's never found very interesting by the journalists I'm talking to, but I think it probably should be, <laughs> do you know? Um, not just in the kind of simple case of, you know, we need to take domestic violence more seriously, um, but because, you know, I think that all, almost is the missing piece in lots of ways when, and uh, Alex, you even brought up, you know, how, you know, these these incel discussions will kind of, you know, rise with huge intensity around this singular act of violence and then disappear again. Um, and in a way, I think that kind of misses the more mundane, everyday danger of incel ideology to women as a, 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 at large, and also misses, you know, the fact that it's not as if domestic violence and, and terrorist violence are, you know, a binary, right? Uh, we know even in, you know, yeah, cases of violence that have nothing of terrorism that, you know, have nothing to do with incel ideology, that frequently the terrorist will have a history of domestic violence against his partner. Um, so sometimes I, I, I worry that because these acts of violence are so horrific and, um, and frightening that they kind of miss this sort of, we then focus on for a little while on the, you know, the obscure, well, not that obscure, sadly, but the, the, you know, the strange and arcane internetness of it all, you know, look at this language they use. Isn't it, isn't it weird? Isn't it bizarre? You know, what, what a bizarre ideology. We kind of miss the fact, I think, that, yes, a lot of it uses, you know, like many internet communities, they've developed their own patois, they develop their own language. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a belief that's outside of society, even if, you know, incels often cast themselves as outside of society, as, you know, these kind of lonely yeah, these kind of lonely, isolated kind of, uh, yeah, cutoffs essentially from um, who are adrift essentially. Uh, many of them, you know, have women in their lives and those women are in danger, do you know? Um, and yeah, I've, you know, kind of read lots of really harrowing things on incel forums about, you know, how they've behaved to women that they know. And, you know, you never know if it's real or if it's just a kind of fantasy because obviously lots of uh, the posts on there are just fantasies but it still kind of does speak I think to the fact that we still aren't really kind of sort of we I mean kind of you know society the media whatever are still really not kind of interested in in that side particularly I think that that's extremely important and yeah really well said uh, that kind of tension also in the broader far right between being a kind of a fringe movement and also articulating something that is really very much at the core of how um, the world is organized at the moment. I think these, these is a really important thing to keep in mind always. There's another sense of connection with normality, which is through the use in um, this guy's videos uh, that we saw. Um, I remember watching one of them a while back and well, not obviously not before the shooting, but like after the shooting and he he, he, he keeps on kind of saying the same phrase over and over again, which is, um, I am now 22. And I, I, he, mm. he was like, I didn't have a proper experience that I should have done when I was a teenager. And, you know, love is for the young. And it's just like this complete nonsense cliche. Mm. Um, and it reminded me, maybe this is a kind of more extreme 
comparison than necessary, but it reminded me of like Hannah Arendt discussing Eichmann, right? Where he just like, the point about Eichmann is that he is more, more average than almost anyone else. Like he is unbelievably average mm. in every single way. And yeah, closest to the average than you would expect and cannot think, just repeats cliches again and again and again and again and again and again. And obviously most people who use cliches when they talk don't get stuck in these kind of fixated, you know, kind of patterns of thinking. But I think this is one of the really kind of, I don't want to make the kind of the, the you know, the cliched remark myself, which is about the banality of evil, but they're, they're, it's, it's a great title because it's kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it is a cliche. I don't want to kind of yeah, get into yeah. it myself. I think a lot of the kind of liberal push towards getting this guy classified as a terrorist or getting this guy classified as a terrorist act is that in this um, post-9-11 world that we live in, people can't really con- conceive of doing something big against a great, horrible thing in society without conceiving it as in terms of counter-terror or terrorism and things like this. And... The problem, one of the other problems with this is that, like I said before, a lot of these pe- these incel people and um, men are sitting in their rooms, posting on the internet all day and drinking a lot of um, energy drinks and not actually engaging with the world. And it, it kind of, incelism of sometimes, very few times, breeds spectacular violence, but it also breeds a lot of passivity as well. Um, how can we how can we intervene within this? How can we counter this? How can we oppose this and 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 fight against incelism uh, without kind of falling into the, first of all, into kind of criminal territory, legal territory, but also into terrorist territory. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the, my first answer to that almost follows from my previous point, which is that, um, you know, we need to have very, I think, robust domestic violence services, um, that recognize incel ideology and also that women um, who, you know, have a, uh, a loved one who is kind of um, dabbling, shall we say, um, trust to, to handle without kind of criminalizing someone that they love or, yeah, you know, sectioning them or something like that. Um, something that really, really struck me about the Plymouth reports were that apparently his mother who was his, his first victim um she she complained to her friends about you know he was talking a lot about you know how much he hated women and um you know how inferior women were and you almost think my god you know in a in a healthier healthier system either she or one of her friends would have said you know that sounds really scary uh why doesn't you know why doesn't he go and talk to this free you know social social worker or psychologist or something like that um who you know will be totally confidential and you know and we can get you somewhere safe if you want and all the rest of it you know that is you know almost my kind of yeah my dream for how that could that could have that situation could have happened and could have occurred um so yeah but obviously that that involves you know just a kind of massive rethinking of and restructuring and funding of you know so many different services um but that sort of seems to me to be kind of one one kind of way in which this could be 
future future incidents god forbid could be prevented um and you know and, and one thing um that i find i find interesting about yeah the, the alleged perpetrators his writings online were that he wasn't actually opposed to getting help do you know um he you know sometimes people say you know you can only help people who want to be helped and um a few times he did actually seem to express a, a desire to to be helped which is you know to to see someone to to talk to someone which is you know one of the, the just most tragic things about all of this um was that that there could and should have been something there that could have yeah hopefully prevented all of this yeah all of this tragedy um yeah i think yeah there's there's a wider point about kind of atomization uh which certainly kind of i think particularly for young people has really really not been helped during lockdown but curiously you know when it comes to when it comes to kind of the incel networks that I, I take a look at, I remember lots of them being very genuinely excited about the prospect of lockdown because they thought, you know, oh, now everyone will be in the same boat as us. You know, now everyone will be kind of cut off and alone and on the computer all the time like we are. So it's kind of a really interesting thing that, um, you know, they were, lots of them were, were slightly thrilled about it um, because it, it from their point of view, from once in their lives, it meant they wouldn't be missing out, do you know? Um, yeah, so that's just a kind of, I suppose, side thought. Um, but I do also think there's something that we have about, you know, uh, uh, kind of social culture, which is increasingly uh, driven by and on social media. Uh, and social media is uh, naturally, particularly on places like Instagram, stuff very aspirational. You know, the point is to look like um, the best version of you possible, as as, as cool and as uh, wealthy and as you know uh, beloved um, as possible. And this, I think, has heightened something that a stigma that's always existed, um, and particularly for men, um, of you know, saying, I'm lonely, you know, um, I wish I had more friends, I wish I had a girlfriend and stuff like that. And um, I do think this kind of stigma breeds shame. And I do think shame then breeds anger. Do you know, particularly if you kind of find a community where, you know, it's it, uh, everyone's like you, so you don't have to feel ashamed. Um, because you're all in the same boat and then what's even better is that then you can kind of turn that turn that shame around and turn it back into a kind of rage not just at women but society at large you know um for for having made you feel this way um so I think this is this is something that I am really trying to work on personally um but I, I don't I don't sort of uh, think of myself as, as as such a a thought leader yet that I can uh, <laughs> I can institute massive societal change soon, soon. <laughs> not yet um, but um, this is something I'm trying to work on essentially is uh, this kind of very casual denigration we have I think of uh, 
of of the of the lonely of the awkward you know um which you often don't even think about um but i i do think it it largely does lead to a slightly toxic cycle um you know of yeah um yeah the the, the kind of i'm lonely and awkward um which makes me more lonely because then i'm too afraid to talk to anyone and then i feel ashamed and then i yeah find you know a group of group of friends and um what do you know you know now i'm i'm posting in this internet forum 24 hours a day uh with these kind of bizarre lurid fantasies about yeah a, a reinstatement of patriarchy and government mandated girlfriends and all the rest you know it, it it sounds very kind of um simplistic because it is you know that there's so much going on else in, in someone else's life that isn't just um yeah that isn't just um affected by you know the kind of minutiae of what people what people say and think it's uh all of you know the uh yeah environmental um material of your life essentially um but it does just feel like sort of in, in a situation where i personally feel very powerless it does feel like one thing that i do think we could do uh pers- on a personal level do you know yeah that's really great thank you for that i'm gonna ask you one more question which is slightly hopefully more upbeat which is about <laughs> your vaccine podcast Ooh, tell yeah. us what you've been uh doing uh to uh, and, and how much are Pfizer paying you? <laughs> I'm not gonna put that out. I'm not gonna put that. that's that's gonna get cut. <laughs> God, I wish they would. Um <laughs> no, so my my vaccine podcast, um yeah, it was born out of, I suppose, as you can probably tell from listening to me talk, I'm a uh <laughs> much more I've always been much more on the kind of arty airy fairy side of things um and I'm not a scientist and the last time I learned about vaccines was in like one class in year nine I think where you know sort of like Jenna noticed you know Edward Dr Edward Jenna noticed that people who got cowpox didn't get smallpox then he made a vaccine the end go do your sats now <laughs> and that was it's like, a very relatable story yeah <laughs> um so you know suddenly uh, I obviously monitor conspiracy theories and I obviously noticed uh, at the beginning of the pandemic a huge uptick in uh, naturally uh, vaccine conspiracy theories, anti-vax uh, kind of discussion. And obviously part of the way these conspiracy theories work is to use to throw lots of science stuff at you all at once, you know, um, that you, you know, are sort of like, wow, that sounds really scary and bad. I, I don't understand half of it, but, you know. Um, God, still really worrying. Um, and so you have to do the kind of the, in my case, very unpleasant work of suddenly figuring out how vaccines work, where they com- came from, what the hell an armor- mRNA is. Um, and uh, somewhere in, in, in all of this research, I actually got genuinely very interested because I thought there was actually a very much more interesting story than the one I'd learned in school. Uh, and I thought potentially a much more comforting story for people who were naturally suspicious of a new technology being thrust upon you by the government who you don't necessarily trust, you know. Um, and I sort of thought, you know, oh, I really hope that the BBC do a documentary series on this because I think it could be really wonderful. And then, 
you know, I waited for a bit and then got angry that they weren't doing it. And then naturally thought, you know, well, if you want something done, do it yourself. So in conclusion, I've created a, or I am in the process of creating, because I've only got three episodes out so far, a six-part podcast series initially, uh, which is just going to chart the history of the invention of the smallpox vaccine. And I think talk about it from less a kind of scientific perspective, but more a kind of history of ideas perspective. Try and kind of, you know, bring about the kind of, you know, what smallpox was, why, you know, immunity was so important to so many people, um, you know, just on an individual level, your family, um, but also, you know, on an actual political and cultural level, it really changed the landscape of so many countries. Um, and also, I think, talk about the fact that a lot of the technology that preceded the vaccination didn't come from England. It didn't come from one, you know, uh, one genius doctor. Um, it was folk practices in places like China and India and Africa um, that Europe was really slow on the uptake to, actually. Um, and so the story of vaccines, which I think often very frustratingly um, get sold to us today as, you know, this kind of scientific uh, technological brilliance, you know, um, which is all well and good if you're someone who gets very excited by that, but lots of people don't, you know, they, they actually find that stuff quite frightening. Um, and actually, and you'll hear lots of people, uh, lots of the vaccine hesitants say it's, you know, just too soon to be sure when it comes to things like the COVID vaccine. And so I sort of thought, <clears throat> and so I sort of thought it might be cool to make a story which shows that this is actually a process, a procedure, a technology, um, which is centuries old, which is older than any of us. And so are a lot of the arguments around it, do you know? Um, so that's what I'm working on at the minute. And it's, it's definitely been really fun because I'm not a historian. Um, and my research, as I've just been talking about, has always been on the kind of here and now, um, you know, these kind of digital groups. And so it's been really, really fun for me going back and kind of finding all of these kind of very similar threads, these very similar arguments that people are having just via pamphlets in colonial Boston instead of in, <laughs> instead of on, on an internet forum. You know, you just notice these kind of charming little details which you sort of think oh you know this is is so much just about human discourse as, as it is about the here and now i would endorse the podcast it's really good so congratulations on the first three episodes thank you alex oh cheers fantastic thank you very much for coming annie kelly do you have any thank you for having me this has been a great discussion thanks Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. I'm going to make those pompous academics regret kicking out such a genius. 
deciding to build my lab and do my research. The Time Talks Podcast. Have you ever stared at a 500-page book and wish you could just talk to the author about their ideas instead? If so, the Time Talks Podcast, part of the Channel Zero Network, is for you. Where we discuss history, politics, music, and art with an anti-authoritarian and anarchist perspective. The Time Talks Podcast. What's this light? I feel different. The Time Talks Podcast. 12 rules. Yeah,